Welcome to the Washington Ethical Society. My name is Perry Bider. My pronouns are he and him. And as today's officiant, I welcome everyone to our multimedia platform. You folks here in the hall, those watching on Zoom, and those catching the recording later. We are one community unified across time and space, gathering to affirm our values and commit to a better world. If you are on Zoom, please check the chat for a welcome and various tips from Judy Myers, today's Zoom chat usher. If you're here in the hall and would like an assisted listening device, that's not easy to say, please ask the sound team at the back. Visitors, if you're here in person, please stop by the welcome table after platform to speak to a greeter or to our membership coordinator, Maceo Thomas. Those of you visiting online now or later, we invite you to send an email to Maceo at M-A-C-E-O-T at ethicalsociety.org or to fill out a connection form, which you can find at tiny.cc slash westconnect. I will now read a few of the greetings that folks have written in the Zoom chat. Uh, folks joining in virtually can use this time to get a candle to light during our candle lighting. So I see quite a number have come in. Uh, Shirley Storms says good morning. Susan Ewing, good morning. Glad to have you both with us. Uh, Laura, uh, good morning from Laura DeShulo, uh, from Paul Baker. Um, Bob Sorensen, hello, first time visitor. Welcome, Bob. Was planning to come in person, but got up late and the dog didn't want a short walk. Been there, done that. Topic of ethical grounding is of great interest to me. Excellent. Sue Smith, good morning to all. Uh, Leanne and Brian say hi. And Abigail Wirf says good morning, everyone. Glad, glad to have you all with us. And glad to see some familiar faces and some faces I haven't seen for a while here in the hall. Welcome to everyone. It's good to connect and share this time together. Opening words this morning are adapted from 11 fun facts about your brain from the website of Northwestern Medicine. Don't worry, I've narrowed it down to five. 60% of the human brain is made of fat, making it the fattiest organ in the body. A piece of brain tissue the size of a grain of sand contains 100,000 neurons and one billion synapses connecting them. The brain as a whole consists of about 86 billion neurons with up to one quadrillion connections. Brain information travels up to 268 miles per hour. It's a myth that you only use 10% of your brain, you actually use all of it. The human brain weighs three pounds, about as much as a half gallon of milk. However, size does not always imply intelligence. Men tend to have larger brains than women. To which I will only add no comment. Our opening music this morning is performed by Chloe Vaught.
Welcome once again. Each week we read our statement of purpose as a reminder of our shared values. If you are interested in taking a turn to read the statement of purpose, you can sign up at tiny.cc slash readSOP. Today's reader is Adam Briskin Limehouse. This is one of the many ways that Adam volunteers his time to serve the West community. Thank you, Perry. The Washington Ethical Society is a humanistic congregation that affirms the worth of every person. We strive through our relationships to elicit the best in the human spirit. With faith in human goodness, we appreciate each person's unique capacities. We joyfully celebrate together and support each other through life. We nurture a sense of reverence and responsibility for each other and the earth. We warmly invite you to join our community of children and adults as we work for a world where love and justice cross all borders. Thank you, Adam. As Adam lights our community candle, I invite those of you with candles at home to light yours and for everyone to join in our candle lighting words. May we kindle within us the warmth of compassion, the light of understanding, and the fire of commitment to build a brighter future for all. Our story this morning is presented by today's platform speaker, L. Parks. And I am waiting for a signal that the sound team is ready with the transition. Okay. Hello, can you hear me? I am hoping that's the case. And let's see if I can get my book in the screen. It appears not. Let me try one more time. Thank you for your patience. It is a short poem book, so we will go ahead and begin with the words. This is called The Stuff of Stars by Marion Dane Bauer, illustrated by Ecua Holmes. In the dark, in the deep, deep dark, a speck floated, invisible as thought, 
weighty as God. There was yet no time, there was yet no space, no up, no down, no edge, no center. No earth with soaring hawks, scuttling beetles, trees reaching for the sky. There was no sky, no you, no me, only the speck waiting, waiting. And then the beginning of the beginning of all beginnings went bang. And in a trillionth of a second, our universe was born. A cloud of gas unfolded, unfurled, zigged, zagged, stretched, collided, expanded, expanded, expanded. Bits bumped, gathered, fused. And throughout the cosmos, stars caught fire, trillions of stars, but still no planets to attend those stars. And if no planets, then no oceans, no mountains, no hippopotami, no violets blooming in a shady wood, no crickets singing to the night, no day, no night. The stars that burned and burned, they burned so long and so hot that some of them exploded, flinging stardust everywhere. And the ash of those dying stars gathered into planets and the planets circled other stars. But still, no bluebirds, no butterflies, and still no snails, no giraffes, still no you, no me. The planets closest to their star stayed very hot. The ones far away grew very cold. But one lucky planet, a fragile blue ball we call Earth, was neither too far nor too near. It circled its yellow star, the one we call the sun, from just the right distance and with just the right tilt to be sometimes warm, sometimes cool. Perfect for turning that starry stuff into mitochondria, jellyfish, spiders, into ferns and sharks and daisies and galloping horses. Again and again, stardust gave birth to stardust. Dinosaurs lived and died, making room for humans. Our great, great, great grandparents and all before them lived and died, making room for more and more children. Then one day in the dark, in the dark, in the deep, deep dark, Another speck floated, invisible as dreams, special as love. Waiting, waiting, dividing, changing, growing, until at last you burst into the world. You took a big breath of the same air once breathed by woolly mammoths. You cried tears that were once salty seas, your hair once the carbon in a leaf. You and the velvet moss, the caterpillars, the lions. You and the singing whales, the larks, the frogs. You and me, all of us loving each other, the stuff of stars.
Thank you, Al. Let us now enter into the centering time of our platform. Each week, we ring this chime in solidarity with people around the world. Today, I am particularly mindful of people for whom the December holiday season is financially or emotionally difficult. As we listen to the chime, let us remember our connection to each other and the world around us. Let us open our hearts to compassion for those who suffer. And let us commit ourselves to the work that calls for our love. I invite you now into a time of meditation. You might want to begin by stretching, then settling your body into a position of ease. Take a moment to get comfortable. And let your thoughts still as you close your eyes or soften your gaze. Take a conscious, nourishing breath. And another. As you continue to breathe, I invite you to try on a sense of wonder about the human brain, yours, and those of everyone else attending this platform and those of everyone in this city and this world. And the fact that we can use our words and actions to make connections between and among our brains and our hearts. We continue our meditation in silence and in the music that follows.
Before there was me, before there was you, before potted plants or elephants in any room, before there was light, before there was sky, there was silence, and with a bang, everything changed. It's been an age since then, but here we are under this star's light, made of dreams and out of dust. Look at the seas and galaxies. You'll just see us. You'll just see us. You'll just see us before the start. The stuff of stars was pure potential. Oh, but here we are. Our phones, our cars, our late night bars, our hopes and our fears, and all of our tears. Once in a while, we don't recall just who we are, but we are made of stars, made of stars. Today's reading is a, oh, sorry, excuse me. Today's speaker is a systems neuroscientist who studies traumatic brain injury, which has been called the most complicated disease of the most complex organ of the body. Yet, as we will explore together, one does not need to be a neuroscientist to know and work with their own mind. This morning's reading is from one such neuroscientist, a queer poet who, nearly 200 years ago, foreshadowed the brain's paradoxical relationship to conscious experience, to all that is, and perhaps all that will be, what some would call God. This is The Brain is Wider Than the Sky by Emily Dickinson. The brain is wider than the sky for Put them side by side, the one the other will include with ease and you beside. The brain is deeper than the sea, for hold them blue to blue, the one the other will absorb as sponges buckets do. The brain is just the weight of God for lift them pound for pound, and they will differ, if they do, as syllable from sound. We're delighted to welcome our speaker today, Elle Parks. She and they pronouns is an interdisciplinary neuroscientist, systems theorist, and neuroethicist whose research focuses on chronic pain and traumatic brain injury. 
Elle holds dual bachelor's degree in philosophy and psychology from New York University, where she worked in research labs studying implicit bias, flashbulb memories, and unconscious stereotyping in the wake of 9-11. Her interdisciplinary master's thesis at the University of Chicago investigated the neuropsychological mechanisms underlying human empathy for pain, and Elle's doctoral research and master's in neuroscience from Northwestern University explored acute and chronic pain perception, as well as structure function entanglements in the human brain. She's also an educator, group facilitator, founder and managing director of the consulting firm Systems Neuroethic. A recent graduate of Star King School for the Ministry and aspirant for Unitarian Universalist Ministry, she seeks to translate 21st century neuroscience into endeavors for the public good. The title of her platform this morning is Neuroethics, Final Frontier, Last Stand, or New Hope. Thank you, Perry. <clears throat> and thank you to everyone gathered here this Sunday, virtually on Zoom and in person in DC. It's a joy to be together. I wish to invite you on a journey this morning into the wild wonder that is the human brain. And not just any human brain, but your human brain. And not just your human brain, but the brains of those around you the brains of those you love and the brains of those you might not even care for so much. Brains embodied in the very beings that we are already in relationship with. Brains in covenant and brains in community because brains are in bodies. Brains that are changing, growing and shrinking in bodies, aging and atrophying in bodies molding and manifesting the very shape of conscious experience and the very practices of your everyday living. I'm gonna begin this morning with a little background on just the history of neuroscience and what exactly this word neuroethics means. Um, first, I'll offer that brief background. And second, uh, from there, dive into how our approach or our conceptual frameworks for how we think about the purpose of neuroscience, either in society or in uh, knowledge formation, uh, can shape the ways that we think about each other and perhaps even our uh, practices for ethical good um, uh, and important endeavors in both humanism and Unitarian Universalism. And lastly, uh, we'll go into three such frameworks, uh, brain as final frontier, brain as last stand, and brain as new hope. Uh, by getting clear on the function and purpose of neuroscience in ethical culture and social policy as it is in the 21st century, my hope is that each of you will feel better equipped to navigate this new field of emerging neurotechnologies and new neuroethical dilemmas. Uh, which are already appearing uh, and will continue to for the next several decades. But let's start at the beginning. In the beginning <laughs> was the word. And here's one thing we know. 
Uh, human beings have been using their brains to talk about brains for at least 5,000 years. We know that a version of the word cerebrum appearing in Old English has origins tracing back to Indo-European languages spoken during the late Neolithic and early Bronze Age. The ancient Egyptians also spoke of brains. They had four different hieroglyphics that all together were meant to refer to the gushy stuff inside the skull. And although records exist documenting on papyrus the anatomical structure of the brain, some of the first descriptions of how it folds in on itself, these folds and curves are called gyri and sulci, and the ancient Egyptians wrote about how it looked like ripples in melted copper. They even wrote the, the, earth, the first um, written records of how to treat open head wounds and deal with traumatic brain injury. Um, however, the brain itself wasn't considered a sacred organ. During mummification rituals, for example, sense organs like the eyes uh, and even the heart were kept and preserved while the brain was extracted, often pulled out through the nose with a hook of some sort and thrown away. I say this to emphasize that for the past several thousand years, human beings largely ignored the brain in their conceptual frameworks of what it meant to be embodied and control one's will or one's consciousness. Western civilization didn't consider the brain a site of wonder. Instead, it was a smelly, mushy, uh, pretty boring looking three pound mass of folded up flesh that doesn't at first glance appear to do anything. In fact, until the late 1800s, Western science and medicine believed that the nervous system, meaning the brain and the spinal cord, was all just one continuous nerve, one homogenous kind of fleshy material with no breaks, no gaps, uh, one single cell folded up into a nerve and packed tightly into the skull with a little tail coming out. <laughs> uh, this incorrect view of an unbroken nervous system remained until the late 1800s when Spanish histologist, artist, and Nobel laureate Santiago Ramón y Cajal got his hands on his first microscope. It was with this microscope in his home laboratory that he examined up close slices from the brains of dead animals he collected. Though he was considered quite unusual by the standard conventions of his day, and all gender nonconforming uh, in some writings and even considered somewhat effeminate, all academic neuroscience textbooks refer to him as the father of neuroscience. Ramoni Cajal's precise and exceptionally detailed hand-drawn renderings of the architecture of the human nervous system, which he saw through the lens of his microscope, were formulated into hundreds of scientific articles published uh, in the early 20th century that completely revolutionized science's understanding of the nervous system, identifying that it actually contained many different types of nerve cells. Uh, not only were there individual nerve cells, but they had different shapes and their shapes allowed them to do different, serve different functions in different areas of the brain. Uh, so we went from this idea of an unimportant kind of mash of mushy stuff some skull filler, 
not considered particularly important for our sensations and understandings of the world to an awareness that there are billions of different kinds of neuronal cells throughout the body. And not only that, but they're supporting cells within the nervous system that even outnumber those 86 billion neurons that serve important functions that we're only just beginning to unravel and uncover. Uh, perhaps more fascinating than the sheer number of neurons was our enhanced conception in the 20th century of just how complicated and nuanced the connections were within the brain. For a long time, um, the purpose of neuroscience was to try to identify which isolated regions of the brain were responsible for different functions. And this came about as a result of the fact that the only way to look at what living brains were doing was to see what happened in someone who had had a stroke or a disease of some sort. So if part of the visual cortex dies and a person loses uh, the ability to see out of one of their eyes, you can associate that, that portion of visual cortex with sight in a particular region of the visual field. Um, but this was still a, a limited way of understanding how brains worked uh, because we could only look at them uh, in these rare cases of uh, disease or, um, or cell death. Uh, or uh, scientists had to wait until after people died to cut open their brains and look at these slices it was complicated to get a whole picture of brain function and how the connections between regions played a part. Uh, Ramoni Cajal, in fact, spoke about how just looking at a single brain slice cannot provide the full three-dimensional picture of how complex this structure is, nor it, um, will it can it describe how the brain isn't isolated to the skull, but actually infuses through neuronal connections and through its influence um, through to nearly every region of the body. Uh, in the book, Beautiful Brain, the drawings of Santiago Ramoni Cajal, uh, curator Lyndall King and Erica, Eric Himmel, uh, er, editor, excuse me, Eric Himmel, consider the visionary approach that elevated Cajal above the rest. They say, quote, at best, a brain slice seen through a microscope is notoriously difficult to interpret. To borrow one of Cajal's favorite metaphors, imagine entering a forest with a hundred billion trees armed only with a sketchbook, looking each day at blurry pieces of a few of those trees entangled with one another, and after a few years of this, trying to write an illustrated field guide to the forest. You won't get anywhere if you simply draw what you see every day. You're going to have to build up a mental inventory of rules for the forest and then scrupulously try to fit what you see into that framework or be flexible enough to allow what you see to reshape your stock of ideas. Some of you may hear in Ramon and Cajal a willingness and indeed an intellectual humility to fail and try again, or as Pema Chodron says, to fail, fail again, fail better. And instead of just collecting information, 
use the mental infrastructure of one's own mind, one's own um, consciousness to pull that information into a framework or a mental model of how to see the complexity at larger scales. Uh, By doing this, Ramon y Cajal birthed a new science. Uh, And yet neuroscience still remains stuck with some of its uh, most um, troubling and and sticking uh, engagements, which is the human desire to simplify complex processes (laughs) down into um, uh, very basic summaries that, that, that lose the big picture of that complexity. And in some ways, that's where we find ourselves today, because neuroscience, as we reached forward uh, towards this turn to the 21st century, went through another major shift. We all of a sudden gained the advent of in vivo neuroimaging techniques. These are things like MRIs, CAT scans, PET scans. Uh, You may have heard of some of this machinery being used in medicine. Um, It's also used to image the brain and forms the foundation of much of the neuroscience research that drove the decade of the brain uh, from 2000 to 2010. And indeed, this is the time period in which the word neuroethics first shows up. In 2002, the Dana Foundation collected a group of interdisciplinary scientists and asked them to explore this term, uh, what what neuroethics might actually mean. And they came up with a definition um, uh, that is commonly also understand now as both the exploration of the ethics of neuroscience Um, So what can we do, uh, given that we have all this technology? What does it mean to put someone, as I used to do, into a scanner that's 60,000 times more powerful than the Earth's magnetic field to try and understand how oxygen is absorbed in the brain? Um, uh, What are the impacts of wearable tech, neurotechnology, selling brain zappers at CVS? These are all questions that fall under the realm of the ethics of neuroscience. And that is really primarily a large bulk of what the work in neuroethics has been for the past 20 years. And while there's certainly a lot there of interest to humanists and Unitarian Universalists and uh, seekers of (laughs) embodied justice and cognitive liberty. Uh, What I actually want to speak about today is the other half of neuroethics. So not the ethics of neuroscience, but rather the neuroscience of ethics, if you will, which simply can be described as given what we know about the brain now, given what we've learned just in the past 20 years alone, not even with Ramoni Cajal, not even back before that, just in the past 20 years, what does that mean for our philosophies of ethics, for our centuries old uh, debates and discussions 
uh, within humanism about things like utilitarianism and deontological ethical duty. <laughs> Another way to frame this is how does knowing how the brain impacts your choices and decisions form a feedback loop that then <laughs> changes the way you move through the world? And this question is, for me, particularly exciting because of how interested the general public has become in the brain and in neuroscience within the past 20 years. Uh, fields considered outside of the basic sciences, but still working in the mind, like psychology, sociology, um, realms in counseling, uh, chaplaincy and pastoral care, even ministry, are finding information about the brain in trauma-informed spaces, in learning and memory spaces, in parenting spaces, and integrating this knowledge into the way they not only see themselves, but perhaps teach or minister to others about what it means to have a brain and be conscious and sense this world. And the reason I wanna talk about this today is whenever there is a complex scientific topic that uh, enters into public discourse, it happens primarily through the use of metaphor and story. Uh, we have metaphors for how the brain works that reflect the evidence and the data that comes out of uh, using a magnet, for example, to temporarily shift protons within, uh, within individual molecules within the human brain while someone does a trial in a scanner. And uh, the important part about this is that metaphors can be easily picked up and yet not all of them are accurate. And some of them actually get in the way of not only how we understand ourselves, but how we are able to use scientific knowledge in order to further the pursuit of ethical living, building better relationships, creating just and sustainable communities. So I'm gonna talk about this. Um, through the, for just for the closing next few minutes, through three kind of common frameworks and metaphors and where their sticking parts are um, and how you might hear about them in public discourse or in the media uh, as, as we talk about the brain more and more over the next few years. So the first of these is to consider brain as final frontier. Uh, my fellow Star Trek fans might uh, recognize the reference there. Um, but in essence, this idea of final frontier isn't just about space exploration and going somewhere new, but embedded within it is our own history, certainly on Turtle Island here in the United States, um, uh, the history of uh, of, of settlers, of colonization, coming to this country and believing the land was empty, claiming there was nothing here, 
using a white supremacist and evangelical fueled manifest destiny to travel west and uh, conquer the frontier. Uh, I worry sometimes that neuroscience is treated this way, both by experts and by folks who are not neuroscientists, but just generally interested in the practice. Um, let me tell you how I hear this show up. The main place is in disciplines around trauma-informed care, where a metaphor or an analogy has started to appear about describing the brain as being structured like it has an ancient reptilian brain. You might have heard this phrase, reptilian brain or uh, lizard brain, an older part of the brain. Uh, it is, it's put into a framework that claims all of our other understandings about mind and body or soul, you know, those are all incorrect and wrong. We have now crossed to the final frontier. We're finally in the right place. And we can see the brain as a tripartite structure. It has a reptilian primitive structure with, you know, emotions and anger. Then it has a, a, a more complicated, slightly reflective, uh, less instinctual system on top of that. But at the peak and in charge, the, the CEO, the, the central executive, if you will, is a frontal cortex unique to humans that controls not only the rest of the brain, but the rest of the body. Uh, and there's some, there's, there's, there's a lot of history as to why humans like to put things in this tripartite structure. Um, but leaving that history to the side, I, if you leave here today with anything, I hope it's uh, that you are convinced that this three-part structure is not only false, but harmful. Uh, it's a harmful framework from which to look at our own brains and the brains of others. Uh, let me tell you why. So in the final frontier attitude, everything gets very simple. This part is in control. This is the stage we are at. There will, are no further explanations coming. That misses the point of what is unique about the human brain because the idea of the reptilian brain was disproved in 1953. It actually came from this guy, David McLean, who uh, was a neuroanatomist, but not a very good one because he dissected an alligator thought it didn't have a frontal cortex, published one article and, uh, and claimed that, you know, people were reptiles and, uh, and only rational men uh, had developed the right kind of frontal cortex in order to keep that in control. Uh, this was written at a time shortly after World War II and heavily referencing anti-Semitic tropes from the 1930s about lizard people uh, and uh, beyond racist characterizations of 
some groups of human beings being closer to animals than others, which has a long history, both in slavery and justification for the transatlantic slave trade, as well as uh, atrocities during the Holocaust earlier in the 20th century. Uh, to be honest, I see no reason to revive or use language um, that not only has such a history, but drives what is a popular current QAnon conspiracy about lizard people uh, and is false, completely false about the human brain. The frontal lobe is not uh, in control of everything else. In fact, what's unique about the frontal lobe is not even its size in, in relation to the rest of the brain. Humans aren't unique in that, but rather the number of reciprocal connections and the number of associations that can be made between the frontal cortex and other regions of the brain and the body at the same time. So to sum up, all of this, a lot of words at once, I'll say that instead of seeing the brain as a final frontier to go to, and then we'll get, that's the place where we'll get all the answers. They'll all be reduced into a simple explanation based on neurons and brain function. I invite you to step into the wonder of knowing that characterizations and theories based on scant evidence from 70 years ago, prior to the advent of any neuroimaging, um, are not only disproved within the field of neuroscience, um, but challenge those who wish to use facts about the brain in their own work. Um, Many of my beloved friends and colleagues, ministers and chaplains, talk about a reptilian brain because it has a utility in being able to say, hey, maybe there's a part of your brain holding on to trauma, and maybe there's a way we can work around that. Um, you know, I, I, I see value in this and the, the urge. Um, in fact, the, the, the claim I want to make from neuroethics is that we have a profound responsibility in how we teach others about their own brains. Uh, and by using overly simplistic explanations, especially if one hasn't bothered to Wikipedia the terms, nor have they ever had a class in neuroscience per se, uh, ends up doing more harm than good and contributes to this idea that science or neuroscience or some scientists somewhere have completely decoded everything about how the brain works, which just isn't true. There is still so much mystery to be found. <laughs> there is still so much mystery there that is not even mentioned. Um, you may see pictures, for example, of a brain with two hemispheres. I have behind me, this is half of a brain cut slightly, cut down the middle like this. And I just want to call your attention to the back here. This structure is the cerebellum. It's kind of like a second brain, about the size of a fist, attached on to the back here. And the cerebellum has 
twice as many neurons as the rest of the whole brain and spinal cord combined. It takes on complicated, unconscious, automatic patterns and learnings of behavior. The cerebellum, for example, is what allows you to drive <laughs> without having to focus on every little detail once you've learned driving, of course, for the first time. Um, not only does the brain itself hold mysteries, but we now understand that what was once thought to be confined to the central nervous system or the brain and spinal cord uh, truthfully is not. Uh, in addition to a peripheral nervous system extending throughout our limbs and legs, you may have heard this system talked about in fight or flight responses, prompting you to run or flee or freeze in response to threat or rest and digest when you know you are safe. Uh, it's the system that the vagal nerve impacts in communication with the brain. But in addition to that, just within the past 20 years again, the, our knowledge of the enteric nervous system or the activity of neurons in our intestines and gastrointestinal tract is uh, just exponentially expanding. Uh, you know, the field of psychiatry is built on the premise that a few neurotransmitters in the brain, things like serotonin, norepinephrine, dopamine, have vast impacts on our mood, attention, learning, and memory. Uh, but those monoamines comprise less than 3% of the neurotransmitters in the brain. They're made in one small area in the brainstem. And it wasn't until this century that we learned that dopamine and serotonin were actually produced most in mass in the body inside the colon. <laughs> uh, you know, 70% of the body's serotonin is made in the gut. 50% of the body's dopamine is made in the gut. If these neurotransmitters have such an effect on our mood and attention just within the brain, how are they part of the interface and interaction that we have with the world around us? Uh, so I encourage you to, when hearing neuroscience facts, or coming across neuroscience articles or people who drop in a phrase here and there, especially if it sounds overly simplistic and, or mentions a lizard or a reptile or suggests that other people's brains turn off, which um, is, is, is not only incorrect, but quite a cruel way to move through the world, I think. Um, a dehumanizing way to look at others, certainly not a way to see wonder and mystery in their potential and future capacity. Um, so instead of final frontier where, oh, all we have to do is figure out which ne neurotransmitters are doing what, and then the brain's gonna tell us everything about the mystery of consciousness. I, I invite you to expand your understanding of the brain out into the body, into the periphery, um, perhaps even outside of the body, uh, as we use more and more devices, whether it be phones or wearable tech to track our behaviors and prompt our awareness. Uh, the, the box that contains consciousness, uh, as Emily Dickinson suggests, might in fact be the largest box to ever exist. But if we abandon this 
final frontier idea. Let's talk about another framework, the last stand. Uh, this, for those of you who are familiar, is a military phrase of tactical significance. It's kind of um, it's a last resort tactic. Uh, it's what you do when there is a body of troops in a defensive position and they're up against overwhelming and insurmountable odds. And uh, you got to figure out which way to win. Um, unfortunately, the majority of the funding currently in neuroethics and in brain research does not go to uh, work like mine or even to other neuroscientists and tenure tracks within universities. <laughs> uh, the majority of uh, federal funding for anything brain related goes to the Department of Defense investigating how to weaponize and use our understanding and knowledge of the brain for military purposes. The second largest source of funding is corporate private money uh, currently going towards Neuralink, an Elon Musk company that um, let's just say does not have the same institutional review boards and ethics um, regulations that a university might. Uh, and there's reason to have real concern uh, in jumping forward towards corporate or uh, uh, military industrial complex intentions for what we are going to do to the human brain. Uh, we are already past the point of uh, creating new neuroethics problems that never existed before. I can tell you, for example, in my own work in the field of traumatic brain injury, I specialize in system science models of concussion, uh, linking cells to society, the entire dynamics um, throughout the field. And we have uh, one thing I can say is that some of you may be familiar with something called a blast concussion, which is an entirely new type of brain injury that just appeared as a result of modern warfare. Um, primarily in uh, the Gulf War and then in wars in Afghan uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, it's a concussion not caused by an impact from outside force, but rather from shockwaves from IED devices that hit the body so hard that a burst of blood shoots up the spinal cord and hits the brain. And it's the impact of your own brain shooting up the spinal cord and hitting your own blood shooting up the spinal cord and hitting your brain that causes this unique type of concussion uh, that has, has a whole host of long range complications. Uh, I also work with one-on-one -on -one with clients and their caregivers experiencing symptoms of long COVID. Uh, these are symptoms that aren't easily categorized by our medical system and are ignored currently by insurance companies who don't wish to take on the burden of long-term impacts on our health during this new age of pandemics. Uh, so when I say that the last stand as a framework for neuroethics 
is one to be wary of and um, and see perhaps as a danger to our humanistic goals of working together to build a safe and prosperous society. Uh, I I hope to leave you with the understanding that these questions are um, being asked right now in uh, in ways that don't want to promote the brain for wonder, but rather for as uh, uh, as as things to weaponize uh, or attack. And it's our responsibility as humanists and Unitarian Universalists who care about the and want to heed the results of science that we don't uh, jump too quickly into accepting any um, forward movement without really evaluating where we are now um, and seeing if this knowledge about how the brain functions is being translated to the general public in ways that don't stoke conspiracy theories about lizard people or ancient anti-Semitic tropes or um, white supremacist uh, ethnic attacks. Um, we we don't have to all <laughs> know every fact about the brain, but it is, I believe, important for us to understand what it is we think the brain is doing, no matter what we know about it, and try to question how others want to tell us what the brain is doing. Uh, is it because they want to teach us? Or is it because they want to minimize complex experience and reduce it down to a simple scientific explanation? Because that we know through history has yet to work. It has yet to function. Even physics cannot explain gravity. Even physics, even our materialism has room uh, for mystery. So with that, I'll leave you with a final framework, an optimistic one, uh, even if it is perhaps a bit generic and bland, but the idea of neuroethics as new hope. And instead of memorizing particular definitions, I want to invite you to remember that you have within you, not only your own brain, but a, um, a, a deep knowledge and an authority of how you assess your own experience. And by training yourself to notice how you think about your mind or talk about your own internal monologue or describe others' minds or allow um, you know, harmful oppressive ideologies around disability or um, deficiency to, to, to distract from what is a wonderful, queer, wild, and yet still incredibly unknown mystery existing within our bodies, within ourselves. Um, so with that in mind, I conclude whether you Keep these frameworks, <laughs> remember any piece of neuroethics, or simply leave today thinking, wow, the brain is maybe a little bigger or more complex than I thought. I wonder what more we are about to learn about it. Um, I hope that these inspire you to think of 
the body and the mind, your head, your heart, uh, whatever the metaphors are that speak to you about how you experience consciousness and the world and how you are inspired to keep going uh, in our tough times in the joys and the sorrows. Uh, to consider your brain as your ally and remember that um, science will be open or closed depending on what we make of it. And progressive theologies like Unitarian Universalism that find inspiration in scientific progress, like ethical culture and other humanist movements, all rely on a human consciousness capable of contemplating itself. If we don't take the time to pause and consider what all of these advancements are supposedly telling us about how to live and who to be, then we'll miss, we'll miss the, the real crux of it, the juice of life. <laughs> we'll miss this turn inwards that's simultaneously a turn backwards in time, this move of self-reflection, of remembering that becomes the foundation for how we create and write our own stories, find purpose, and discover meaning. So with those words, I thank you for your presence today, for your brain activity, for your whole embodied being. I am grateful to be embrained and embodied with you and on this mystery ride that is life. Thank you, Elle. That gave us a lot to think about. A lot of information and very passionate perspectives to consider. In a few minutes, we'll have our community sharing time when you can write into the chat or share in person about what resonated with you in this platform. While we listen to today's musical response, you might prepare by reflecting on a personal experience or an activity at West that the platform brings to mind. Maggie Jane has a family, makes a good salary. Her life is quite ordinary, except for her astronaut dream. They happen when she is sleeping They happen when she's awake They come like abductors who sneak in And carry poor Maggie away Suddenly Maggie Jane is floating high In space, up among the supernovae and the bright nebulae Another point of life far away. Keep busy, say the doctors. Clean house, turn on the TV. They give her pills to stop her from having her astronaut dreams. 
Never still keeps calling, haunting her daily routine. Defenses are slim when the light ears creep in and then steal her away beyond reach. Suddenly, Maggie Jane is floating high in space, up among the supernovae and the bright nebulae. Another point of light Far away And that world of her work And her bills and her children Is a tiny place In a remote solar system And the size and the scope Of the space where she floats Is so big This is the time when we add our own voices to the morning, sharing our reflections on the platform or what resonates with our personal experience. For our online participants, I invite you to share in the Zoom chat as several of you have already been doing, uh, or in the comments if you're watching the recording later. If you're here in person, we'll have time for you to come to the microphone here on the floor, uh, hoping that you will keep your comments brief so that others may also share. Let me start with uh, some of the initial Zoom comments. Um, Cynthia Goodman says, a deep and fascinating platform. Thank you, Elle. Uh, Scottney says, Scottney Young says, awesome platform that stimulated and invited my curiosity to learn more about this topic and think critically about the information I see in the media on this topic. Thank you. Shirley Storms, wow, what an amazing speaker with so much knowledge. I wish this could be an ongoing series. Uh, Judy Ohm says, wow, amazing talk. Thank you for speaking to us this morning. I've always been fascinated by brain research and am even more so now. I will stop using the misnomer lizard brain to talk about when we flip into fight, flight, or freeze mode. And I want to learn about gut health. I will go back and listen to the recording of this talk. Laura Steele says, wow, wow, wow. I have been fascinated with all the development and explorations of the brain since the early to mid-80s when I attended a National Me Mental Health Association conference at NIMH, which presented the first forays into imaging. I just love this topic. Thank you, Elle. Candace is very cons... Oh, oh boy, hold on a second. Um, 
Candace is very concerning the funding from the DOD, and she asks, any references? And Al has said, yes, Candace, feel free to check out my TBI articles here with references. Don't know what TBI stands for, but um, the link is there. So, um, Mark Mayer, fascinating topic. Do you do any work on the effects of concussions on athletes? And Al says, Mark, yes, I consult with athletes. Um, as clients as well as write about concussion types here, and there's a link for that. Uh, Susan Ewing, Wonder, as well as concern about the future context for Wonder. Thank you for this platform. Candace, again, we'll try to spread the corrective information provided. Oh, thank you, L. TBI means traumatic brain injury. All right, um, that's it for the comments in the chat at the moment. I see that Peter is waiting to speak to us here in the hall. Thank you, Perry. Uh, I just want to, uh, I thought this was a really great platform. And uh, however, I wanted to add one little point that I hope El will really agree with me on, picking up on something that Perry said at the very beginning when he encouraged us all to have wonder about our brain. And that is as a, I'm a philosopher who has been dabbling in neuroscience. And in, in that, from that perspective, I have become very aware uh, that it's time to ask the question of what is the observer of science? And my answer to that is that the observer of science is, is the human brain, okay? The, the human consciousness uh, is normally the way we think of it. And furthermore, uh, we can see uh, at the very, even before the beginning of the Enlightenment, we see Rene Descartes as he's saying, that everything that happens, happens as a result of natural law. He's sitting back there and he's then observing his own thoughts and saying, but there is, but, every, but things that happen by natural law, that's like a clock or like making like a loom. And because uh, it turns out the fabric industry was uh, one of the more highly, highly automated industries of the time. But, uh, but he said, but my thoughts are not, cannot be done by a clock. And we now agree with that point of view, but he did not know anything about modern information processing. So even he was realizing, he was observing his own thoughts and coming to, to philosophical and scientific conclusions about that. The Enlightenment then decided that his uh, uh, duality of mind and body was wrong, that no, no, the mind actually does operate through natural law. Uh, so thank you. I'm Denise, he, her pronouns. The thing that stuck with me most that Elle said was, I'll paraphrase badly, but essentially that I am the authority of my own brain and my thoughts and my reaction was first, wait, really? I feel like I've been trained to kind of outsource all of that to people around me or experts like, should I be thinking this? Am I normal? And my second response is, 
how do I do? How do I become the expert of my own brain? And how do I give myself authority over that? And I think that's actually one of the things that I've sort of been learning as part of the West community is mm -hmm. to listen to myself. So I hope that everybody else will also explore that with me. Thank you. Thank you, Denise. Thanks to everyone who has shared their thoughts with us this morning and their attention. Just as we share our perspectives in this community, so too do we share our resources and gifts. Here at WES, we split all undesignated gifts in the Sunday collection between our operating budget and a fund dedicated to justice and compassion. This month, we're sharing half of the offering with Bread for the City, whose mission is to help Washington, D.C. residents living with low income to develop their power to determine the future of their own communities. Bread for the City provides food, clothing, medical care, and legal and social services to reduce the burden of poverty. They seek justice through community organizing and public advocacy. They work to uproot racism, a major cause of poverty, and are committed to treating clients with the dignity and respect that all people deserve. Let's all take a moment to respond to the invitation to generosity. For those who are able to respond, we offer several options. As noted on the screen, the number to give by text is 202-335-1885. And you can donate online via tiny.cc slash westgives, or by clicking on give on our website, ethicalsociety.org. You can also place a check or cash in the basket at the back of the hall on your way out or send a check by mail. Thank you for your generosity. We will now receive your gifts and the gift of music. Well, never let it be said that we don't appeal to a wide variety of musical tastes here at Wes. Thank you so much to the many people who helped to create this morning's time together. Senior leader Casey Slack and staff members Andara Miles, Robin Kravitz, Maceo Thomas, and Tom Hutton. Interim music coordinator Leah Morris and the guest musicians she recruited. 
And our platform production team, the tech team members, slide artists, Zoom, chat usher, in-person greeters, and virtual coffee hour host. You'll see their names on the credit slide at the end, but speaking of which, I want to shout out to new volunteer Amy Foltz, who handled today's slides. Thank you, Amy. At the conclusion of the platform, please join us for social hour in person around the foyer and on the patio or for virtual coffee hour via Zoom. First, though, I want to mention a few things happening in our community. If you signed out an ornament from our giving tree, the gift you purchased is due today. If you didn't bring it with you this morning, you can drop it off at the home of Genevieve McDowell Owen. Um, thanks to Genevieve and to all who participated in this wonderful annual tradition. And speaking of gifts, I'll remind you that you can support Wes by buying official Wes merchandise at www.bonfire.com slash store slash Wes. It may not, may not seem like much, but if we all bought a t-shirt, sweatshirt, or hoodie, well, we'd all be looking pretty cool. And we'd be helping raise awareness of Wes, so that's a twofer. As always, the Thursday News and Notes email is a good source for info about the group activity going on in our community. Looking at this week's edition, I see that the biology reading group meets today at one o'clock, but good timing. Uh, the Global Connections group is meeting tomorrow at 7.30 p.m. and the Immigration Justice team is doing likewise on Tuesday. Uh, speaking of Global Connections, they're already planning next July's trip to El Rodeo, our sister community in El Salvador. So teens and their families are encouraged to start thinking now about joining on that trip and to be in touch with Ross Baker or Susan Runner, excuse me, Ross Wells or Susan Runner for more information. Also on Tuesday evening is the first of a series of small group chats for West folks and our new senior leader, Casey Slack, to get to know each other better. This one will be on Zoom from 8 to 9 p.m. and is open to everyone. Other sessions for particular parts of the West community are scheduled for January and February. The link to sign up to the sign up page is in the news and notes email. Next week, the Sunday platform will be our annual winter festival. It won't be a play this year, but it will be festive and will include some of our beloved traditions like the presentation of the community's children and youth and the peace spiral. I'll be here with the chorus, and I hope to see many of you here as well. The teen group will also be meeting that day starting at noon. That's it for today's announcements. Thank you all for being part of Platform today, whether in person, via Zoom, or watching later. And I invite you to join in our closing song, What a Wonderful World. I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them bloom. For me and you, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. I see skies of blue, clouds of white, bright blessed day, 
dark sacred night and I think to myself what a wonderful world the colors of the rainbow are so pretty in the sky and they're on the faces of the people passing by I see friends shaking hands, saying, how do you do? They're really saying, I hear babies cry, and I watch them grow. They'll learn much more than I'll ever know, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world And I think to myself What a wonderful Few last reminders before we leave. If you're new to our community, please send an email to our membership coordinator, Maceo Thomas, and introduce yourself. For those who wish to socialize online to reach virtual coffee hour, print your, point your browser to tiny.cc slash westcoffeehour. And now I invite you to join me in our closing words for the month. Let us go into the week ahead with compassion, understanding, and commitment to wonder, bringing our whole selves, honoring the fullness of one another, and opening ourselves to awe in our quest for a better world. Again, thank you all for joining today's platform. We look forward to connecting with you again soon.